Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into today's episode of the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. This is Rod Zabriskie, and I'm flying solo today. Christian will be joining me back here again next week. Uh, but for today's episode, I'm really excited because uh, I had an interview with Nick Batia, who is the founder of the Bitcoin Layer, uh, the author of Layered Money. Really a, a fascinating conversation because, well, maybe I can break down a little bit of, of uh, Layered Money. So I read, I read the book and was really excited to have Nick agree to come and join us for the podcast. And in his book, he lays it out in a way where you can understand Bitcoin, how it works, how it fits in with kind of the historical currencies. And what he's going to say is that it is slated to become a mainstream currency of its own. So I'm really excited about this interview. Let me just give you a little more information about Nick. Uh, he is a financial researcher who has experience uh, at a trading desk for a major institutional asset manager. And with that experience, kind of learned really in depth about money markets and interest rates and other things like that. Uh, he was living it every day. And then he got fascinated with Bitcoin and learned about that and kind of creates this bridge between what was, what traditionally has been and and what is kind of up and coming with Bitcoin. So really excited about that. He's an adjunct professor at USC, and uh, he'll tell us a little bit about his journey in getting there. But anyway, really excited about the interview and hope everyone enjoys my conversation with Nick Batia. Okay, welcome to the show, Nick Batia, founder of the Bitcoin Layer and author of Layered Money. Thanks so much for joining us today, Nick. Thanks for having me, Rod. Absolutely. Okay, so first off, what I'd like to do is... Have you tell us a little bit about what makes you tick? So what what personal or, or life factors led you to finance? Yeah, as a as a young person, uh, my father was in medicine. And as a young person, I, you know, would go to the, the office with him sometimes and see his, uh, you know, medicine side of things. But then I would see him go upstairs and deal with the management company and talk about the finances and that always interested me more. Okay. And we, you know, he read Barron's and had CNBC on, you know, as, as a kid and it always interested me. Markets always interested me. Um, and I had my first few shares of XYZ tech companies, uh, during the internet bubble okay. as a, as a young person. So I, I had an early interest in financial markets and as I grew older and studied more in school, came across economics and world politics, mm -hmm. these were the courses in, in high school that attracted me the most and uh, really locked in my focus on this path to become a financial market participant. Cool. So almost like it was in your blood, like you're presented with a lot of different things. And it sounds like that's just like what was drawing you. Yeah. I mean, of course, I wanted to be an NBA player as a young okay. child, right. but, yeah. uh, you know, not going past five, six was uh, definitely a challenge there. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but, you know, I've, I've, and music has been a, a long time interest of mine. And I, I even attempted, uh, you know, some music projects as a young person as well. So, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of interests, uh, you know, across the spectrum. 
I even considered going to law school after university. Um, but I'm thankful that I ended up where I am. And that yeah. is a participant in the financial markets. Awesome. So you, you get a degree in finance and then you get to the trader's desk. So tell us a little about your time there. Yes. Yeah, so I started my first role as a, a front office member of the investment industry mm-hmm. was as a cash trader. That's what they call traders that are basically trading treasury bills, okay. treasury repo, other discount securities, commercial paper securities, and money market instruments, money market funds. And um, that was my world for my first year on the desk. And what a great place to get your training because learning about bills, repo, you have to be a Fed watcher through and through. Mm -hmm. You have to understand treasuries, monetary policy, the economy, and what's going on. So you're basically at at the center of the rates desk. And I'm really happy that that's where I was. I gravitated toward the T-bills side of the cash desk Mm -hmm. as opposed to the commercial paper or certificate of deposit side of the cash desk, which, as you know, is credit, not rates. And corporate credit or bank credit is not my interest. I don't actually care about... uh, individual companies and their earnings or their credit profile or relative credit worthiness within corporate uh, space. And so I, you know, basically established my place as the bills trader of the desk and the, the, the repo trader as well of the desk. And that eventually opened the door to trade more of the treasury curve out to five years than was my next role and eventually took over all cash treasury trading. I mean, meaning all the way out to 30 year uh, bonds in as well as the treasury futures uh, dynamic within the firm. So all that futures hedging on the treasury side of things. So that was my full responsibility over the course of my career on the desk. And as I became the treasury's trader for the entire curve. I also established my place as a contributor on interest rate strategy. So essentially duration calls or how to position the portfolio for price sensitivity to changes in interest rates along the curve. Yeah. So all of this prepares you for kind of where you are, are have led to, to today. Uh, let's next talk about the book. So uh, layered money, uh, and I've, I've enjoyed reading it. Uh, it's been, it, it is a little more uh, technical than, than often what I read, but it, it drew me in and it kind of led me like, so I think you do a really good job of, of, you know, moving one piece to the next and, and slowly building so that someone again, as, as non-technical as myself, uh, can, can follow it and, and really do well. So, but what, what took you to where you decided to write the book? Yes. So I, in 2019, I had already established myself as a Bitcoin writer, someone who was writing Bitcoin, essentially research posts. And I had, you know, a dozen, half a dozen, a dozen at that point. 
And I had a lot of energy around Bitcoin writing. I, I, I loved it. And it's something I started in 2018. I was on the desk at the time. So it was kind of like a night, a nights and weekends sort of thing yeah. for me um, and, a, and a hobby of sorts. But in 2019, I faced a, you know, a serious career uh, fork in the road. It was continue in the fixed income market as a rates person mm -hmm. and then as a rates expert and move, you know, move up to strategy, portfolio management and pursue that long term or take this path as a Bitcoin writer and as a teacher, because I was presented the opportunity to become an adjunct professor at USC, yeah. my alma mater and somewhere where I'm a third generation Trojan. Cool. I don't tell this story a lot, but my grandfather went to USC, got a double master's in the early 1950s and moved my family from India through England to the United States because of his love for USC film and Southern California. Nice. So the opportunity to teach at USC was the honor of a lifetime for me. Mm. And it came with, and the course, by the way, was rates. That's what okay. I teach. Okay. That's the course. I have a second Bitcoin course now, but that's brand new as of 2023. And so it was to teach rates, but you know, I had this opportunity to teach at SC and pursue Bitcoin writing or stay rates and maybe not ever get to explore Bitcoin writing with my full energy because it was, you know, I still had compliance considerations sure. on the desk. Yeah. And that restricts you because you are a fiduciary first. Uh, like, and I take that, I took that role extremely seriously. Sure. Uh, a fiduciary puts their client even above their firm and of course above themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's and th that's the road I went. I went toward Bitcoin writing and teaching. That was at the end of 2019. The pandemic set in March 2020. And I just said, I'm going to drop everything that I have going on the side. And I'm going to write my Bitcoin book, um, which is my explainer mm -hmm. for why Bitcoin is a logical and evolutionary innovation in money. Yeah. And from the monetary science side of things, it is the merger of cryptography and monetary science. And yeah, and I think and I think it does a really good job of that. Uh and maybe you were uniquely qualified because of your experience in that world. And then like I said, starting as kind of this side thing, but but really becoming an expert in Bitcoin and and whatnot, and and so kind of bridging that gap of of how and why Bitcoin can can serve a role in the monetary world. And I knew that my time on the desk trading billions of Treasury securities on a weekly basis, and you know seeing a hundred you know, a hundred over a hundred billion basically across my desk and seeing how large institutions allocate capital from that vantage point, 
you know, the original working title, this is actually before I came up with the whole layered money story, but my original intent for the book was something like Bitcoin through the lens of a bond trader. Mm. That's the book I wanted to write. Gotcha. And that was the working title before I had a working title, uh, you know, for the story itself. But in the, before I even resigned from the desk, I wanted to write a book called Bitcoin through the lens of a bond trader. Gotcha. Cool. Well, I think um, one thing that's really interesting to me and that really helped is, is the way that you broke it. And I mean, you called it layered money. You ended up, you know, that, that's what you, but, but that idea of, and, and just the structure, this kind of hierarchy that you were able to create of, of this, these layers of money. So maybe, uh, maybe to create a baseline, let's talk through a quick summary of, of what you call the layers. Maybe we can start where you began with gold as the top level and, and go from there. Sure. So the book is called Layered Money. And the word layered is, I took it from Bitcoin and its relationship with its second layer payment solution and scaling solution, which is called Lightning Network. Okay. But the layered framework is derived from or borrowed from Professor Perry Merling, an economics and banking professor who is a, quite a mainstream financial academic thinker mm -hmm. and widely cited across all walks of finance, banking, and monetary science yeah. for his books, papers, leadership. He also has one of the best free resources in banking and finance, which is his Coursera Money and Banking course, which you know ex could explain to you <laughs> Yeah, 10 times what I know about banking. Gotcha. But Professor Perry Merling put forth a paper in 2012 called The Inherent Hierarchy of Money, in which he explains that gold, government currency, and commercial banking deposits, these three types of money, historically, have a hierarchical relationship with each other mm -hmm. in that central bank currency or government currency is a liability of the government slash central bank, which is a promise to pay gold mm -hmm. and commercial banking liabilities or your deposits, your checking account is a promise to pay government currency. So in that way, gold is at the top level of the hierarchy. Central bank money is at the second level and commercial banking deposits is at the third level of this hierarchy. And it's a theoretical hierarchy because it's historical in nature. Obviously, gold is not at the top of the hierarchy right. of the dollar today. Hasn't right. been so for over 50 years and in theory much longer. Call it maybe a, uh, you know 90 years or so since the 30s. But the idea was what when we were on the gold standard, the idea was that if I was holding uh, a dollar bill uh, or even before then, like a couple hundred years ago, some sort of note that that tied it back to gold, it was cumbersome to carry gold. It was risky to carry gold for a lot of reasons. I didn't want to just carry gold around or, you know, and so having these bills replace that made sense. Right. So. Um, but, but again, there was something backing it, 
right? So then now that we're not on the gold standard, what what replaced it as the top layer? U.S. Treasuries. And U.S. Treasuries are held by the central bank as it, their core asset so as to give confidence to the liabilities that they issue to the public and to the banking system. And so U.S. Treasuries are the first layer of money in the dollar spectrum. Yeah. And if you think about, if people think about dollars, oftentimes they think about the bank account balance that they have, Yeah. not understanding that that's just a banking liability and that for normal people to protect their money, they should remove their deposit from the bank and put it into a brokerage account and purchase a money market fund that owns treasury bills, for example, yeah. like a government money market fund, which there's a whole regulated uh, spectrum. It's called 2A7 is the technical term for government money market funds that, you know, Fidelity, JP Morgan, Bank of New York Mellon, State Street, they all have these massive money market funds that buy treasuries, treasury repo, also keep money at the Fed's reverse repo facility. These are instruments that own the actual forms of dollars mm -hmm. that don't have risk. But your commercial banking deposit has essentially full exposure to that bank outside of the FDIC insured amount. Mm -hmm. We know that that's now a moving target post Silicon Valley, et cetera. But the point here is that money falls into a hierarchy. And so treasuries are on the first layer, Federal Reserve money, which is reserves, in the banking system and cash are on the second layer and your commercial banking deposit is on the third layer of money. So the difference to me is that as I looked at that and I said, okay, gold, you can hold it. It has intrinsic value, even if it's not a coin or maybe tradable or, or I mean like, you know, collectible or things like that. A treasury ha has value because there's this, there's this promise, but again, well, maybe I should ask you, where does the value come from? It's not it's not intrinsic in the commodity like gold was. Where does the value come in when we're using the treasuries as that top layer? Yes. I mean, it really comes back to the decision in the early 1970s to go off of a gold standard. The U.S. believed at that point that it had the creditworthiness and the confidence of the world and of its citizens to remove a link to gold convertibility from the dollar construct. So we are in year 50 mm -hmm. of that process. And that is the world that we live in. So the con it's the answer to your question is confidence. Yeah. Where does the confidence come from? It comes from a 50 year track record because the decision was made in the seventies to make this move away from gold. And did it work out well for the U.S., broadly speaking? I would argue, yes, it did. And yeah. so that's the environment that we live in. The U.S. Treasury security is a promise to pay dollars by the Treasury Department or the U.S. government. And that is, in today's world, as good as gold, as the saying mm -hmm. goes, because it is the standard for a final settlement, really, um, in the dollar spectrum. And I'll tell you what is not the final settlement replacement, and that's a bank wire, a bank deposit, mm -hmm. because um, 
that exists in a highly fractionalized uh, sort of way right. and with uh, a large amount of counterparty exposure to the bank. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess then uh, we're saying, or you're saying the last 50 years has proven out that it, it worked and maybe even worked beyond what they expected because of just the global nature of, of what the monetary system is right now and, and the role that the Fed plays in that. Um, but I guess my next question is, is, is that sustainable long-term? Well, has it worked out for the living standards of all Americans and the purchasing power of all Americans? I would argue that that is convincingly in the probably not side okay. of things. And so is it sustainable? Well, that would require all the participants of that system to benefit from that system. Mm -hmm. And you know, I would argue that that's not the case. Yeah. And so there are those that are opposed to a, a break from reality for the US dollar and the US dollar system. It can get political there, where people take to politics to express why they think this is a, a wrong system. Um, but it also can go beyond politics um, as well, just looking at the Federal Reserve and the nature of the banking system uh, as well and the relationship of money with commodities and property. Right. So that's, I think that's what we find ourselves in today. The rise of Bitcoin is part of that. The rise of property speculation, um, the rise of stock market participation from average uh, wealthy Americans as a way to keep up. All of these things are dynamics and echoes of a break in the dollar's link with gold, potentially. And um, I think that these factors are with us in the culture and the, and the conversation today and will continue to be there. Right. And certainly over the last 15 years, it's been strained. And even just, you know, like recent the last six weeks, nine, nine months, uh, that's happened. So how would you characterize how these events that we've seen over the last, again, it goes back 15 years, but even you go to 2020 to, to last year in the summer of, you know, where, where the result of, of all the inflation and now the Fed has to make changes, et cetera, basically forcing some of these banks to fail and then stop gapping that to make sure it doesn't become, you know, epidemic in terms of those bank failures. So how does that all play out and strain the system? A, what is the focus of economists? It's growth, right? The growth of the yeah. economy. And in order for an economy to grow in this leveraged system, the amount of credit issued always has to increase. And when the amount of credit issuance decreases, it causes disinflation, recession, and it, it strains the system. And because the system is so leveraged that when it goes into a deleveraging process, it becomes so punitive that government has to come to the rescue mm -hmm. because it depends on constant expansion. So the leverage in the system, the amount of debt in the system, the amount of credit that has been issued money that has been lent into existence 
-hmm. all of that does depend on a constant expansion. It goes through cycles, but it does depend on expansion. And central banks are have become the entity to fuel 100% of that expansion over the last 15 years as private credit creation through the euro dollar system, you know, has slowed down as a result of recognizing, uh, you know, this goes back to the middle of the book of layered money, why the development of the offshore dollar spectrum mm -hmm. became so threatening to the idea of the dollar that the Fed had to come in and actually backstop the offshore dollar system, as well as the onshore dollar system. And that's the environment we live in. So the Fed is the only, only lend, uh, lender of only resort. The Fed, the Fed is tasked with providing credit issuance when it seizes in the broader economy. And with the cyclical nature of the business cycle and monetary, a monetary policy cycle, you know, we're, we're, we're actually going to see that happen again here as credit contracts. Mm -hmm. what is going to happen? The Fed is going to have to respond with liquidity and it's a boom bust cycle. The cycle approach to investing and macroeconomic research is absolutely at the core of what I do at the Bitcoin layer, my research provider. We have a free newsletter and YouTube channel podcast. People can find everything at thebitcoinlayer.com. But that's what we're building. We're building a research tool to explain to people that this business cycle kind of dictates all mm -hmm. and it dictates the way that the Fed reacts in a counter-cyclical way. It affects asset prices and it affects asset allocation, meaning you have to know where you are in the cycle to allocate assets in the best possible way. I teach this to my USC students. I try to teach it in my writing at the Bitcoin layer and it, the cycle and how to identify where we are in the cycle is so essential to understanding what's going on. Once you do that, you can understand that the Fed has to and will respond with credit issuance or liquidity measures when credit contracts because of the nature of a credit money system. Yeah, right. And and there are those that say, well, and we'll get more on to the Bitcoin and other things, but uh, there are those who say that the current monetary system will collapse. And when it does, uh, we'll fall back to gold and basically kind of like start over. Uh, so what do you, what do you say to that? I mean, they haven't, they've been saying that for 50 years. <laughs> yeah. And the answer is yes, they have, because you can actually go back and read all the books, research papers, uh, hysteric newspaper articles and magazine articles that say, the death of the dollar is coming. The bursting of the sovereign debt bubble is coming. Hyperinflation is coming. All of those things have accelerated in terms of being headlines mm -hmm. since the financial crisis as well. We're 15 years removed from the, from the financial crisis. The dollar is still the world reserve currency. Foreign holdings of U.S. treasuries were $1 trillion in the year 2000. 23 years later, they're at $7 trillion. And they're off from almost eight to about seven and a half. So that's mm -hmm. what's happened over the last 
year and people are saying, oh, we're in the, for the death of the dollar. No, it, it has, it's not based in any reality. Mm-hmm. 80% of global oil settles in dollars. Gotcha. 3% of global FX reserves are in Chinese yuan. 3%. So the, the idea that China and Russia and Brazil and India are going to come together and form a gold slash oil backed commodity currency regime that challenges the dollar, it is very far fetched. And it has become almost mainstream. But I will cite the same 2010 article that says China and Russia agreed to drop the dollar in bilateral trade. That's now over 12 years ago. That was in November of 2010. And in 2018, the the official beginning of the technology cold war between the United States and China even further pressures the Chinese yuan from becoming an internationalized currency of any relevance whatsoever. And gold and gold isn't even part of that conversation where people mm-hmm. are actually talking about the Chinese Chinese block and the Chinese currency linking to gold. They're not even talking about gold itself. They're saying that China owns gold and so therefore this will become a thing. How big is the Chinese global uh the bond the Chinese bond market proportion that's owned by foreign investors. So I gave you the treasury number is seven trillion. The total bond market total, sorry, the foreign ownership of US bonds in total is 12 trillion. So about seven trillion in treasuries and then another five trillion in mortgage-backed securities and corporate bonds. Okay. 12 trillion owned by the world of US bonds. How much for China? The world owns their bonds? 500 billion. Interesting. How large is the market cap of Bitcoin? 600 billion. And was, you know, a trillion. So Bitcoin is actually in that conversation already. And yes, gold is, the market cap is 10 trillion. And it is a large portion of the overall reserve makeup of central banks, governments, family offices, and families around the world, especially if you consider countries like India and China, where they mm-hmm. value physical gold ownership, the Chinese government actually in- has been encouraging its citizens to buy physical gold for the last 15 years. Gotcha. So there are there are competitors to the dollar on the horizon, but all of that needs to be taken with a grain of salt and with the numbers mm-hmm. and the trends mm-hmm. themselves. The death of the dollar is the most celebrated non-event of the last 50 years. And people really need to understand the numbers. We've broken down the numbers, some of these numbers in the Bitcoin layer. I'm going to continue to write about it and make uh, videos about it to explain here that the death of the dollar is not on the horizon. There are challenges to the dollar of which Bitcoin is a serious one, but even then the sizes, you have to align the sizes of these nominal quantities of money, of reserves, of wealth around the world. Bond and stock markets are both $50 trillion each in US-based securities alone. Mm-hmm. It's $100, 100 trillion of 
in theory, non-leveraged wealth. And I understand a lot of that is financed on a short-term basis, you know, via the repo market and other borrowing, but there is a hundred trillion in wealth there that exists. And Bitcoin is 600 billion. Gold is 10 trillion. And the Chinese bond market owned by the rest of the world is, you know, less than a, you know, far less than a trillion. And I understand that Chinese stocks and the aggregate bond market is there, but the numbers just don't line up with a death of the dollar narrative. And you can still talk about the measures, but they're just measures, announcements, uh, hopes and dreams, contracts, handshakes that we're going to end the dollar, but the numbers aren't there yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's super helpful. Okay. So now we're going to switch gears a little bit because I want to take a step back now with Bitcoin and uh, can we, we started with your, the, the layers with gold at the top. We switched to the treasuries at the top. Now let's, let's talk about that, that hierarchy with Bitcoin at the top. Bitcoin is deriving its value today and over the past call it dozen years of time series price data, it derives its value from the issuance of the monetary unit within the software and the energy that secures that network. That's called Bitcoin mining. Mm -hmm. And the energy that secures the network And the rules of that network, which have gone unchanged in terms of issuance schedule, has given Bitcoin a value in the market. Now that value is about $600 billion. It reached above $1 trillion in late 2021 Mm -hmm. and dipped to, uh, you know, about $300 billion there uh just a few months ago when ftx went under that's mm-hmm. now you know about five six months ago but bitcoin has attracted let's call it half a trillion of market value and really on a steady average basis here of the last three years or so where it's had a market cap of about this amount now people call bitcoin a bubble speculative bubble But Bitcoin has actually had 80% declines at three different cyclical points in its young history. And each time has risen to a market value. This time, we'll have to see if it does it again. This is the fourth fourth decline. So if and when Bitcoin does rise above its 1.34 trillion market cap high, previous high, Mm -hmm. and $70,000 US dollar price, it will have completed this process four times, but the market and and people around the world, Bitcoin adoption is actually, you know, um, I'll give you a statistic. There are over 50 countries in which 10% or more of the populace owns Bitcoin. Yeah. Participating in some way, shape or form that I got from uh, Statista data. And that's, of tw- that's as of 2022. So Bitcoin is an incredibly global Mm -hmm. uh, currency already owned by a huge uh, section of the world's population. And uh, you don't, you can't really say there's one type of 
Bitcoin owner or a Bitcoin holder, you know, just think about the proliferation of Bitcoin versus physical gold in a day and age like today with the internet and, you know, most of Africa and Asia experiencing cell phone, smartphone usage before ever uh, sit down internet connection. Mm. Um, that's, that's the setup for Bitcoin to achieve value. And because Bitcoin doesn't have a center, there's no company, no mm -hmm. person, and people really do have to spend some time understanding what Bitcoin mining is and how Bitcoin's blockchain works yeah. to discover how it is truly decentralized. There's no company, no person, no committee, no foundation, no address. There's no center of Bitcoin. It does truly exist in a decentralized way and in decentralized internet uh, environments around the world. And the same and cannot be said for other cryptocurrency that, you know, a lot of them, or not even a lot of them, a hundred percent of cryptocurrencies are an echo boom of Bitcoin and therefore have an identifiable person, company, or foundation that has been integral in the launch of and uh, issuance and even regulation of the own of their own networks themselves that does not exist in bitcoin the government us government irs cftc even the legislative branch have all understood and even declared bitcoin as a commodity the legislative mm -hmm. branch hasn't officially done this but they are they are going off irs and cftc rulings that has not that has not been applied to any other cryptocurrency yet where ethereum is people some are arguing it's a commodity others are arguing it's a security that's a legal battle that will continue to rage on for years to come mm -hmm. and you know to just assume that that's going to play out quickly i think is uh, premature as well so bitcoin is a digital commodity and because it has achieved this digital commodity label which is, by the way, unprecedented in history, right. human history. Right. It is positioning itself as digital gold. This is the, one of the first narratives. Digital gold means that gold was the universally accepted and understood neutral commodity, apolitical commodity. Bitcoin has re-engaged those properties in a digital form. And that's why Bitcoin has the potential to serve as a first layer money. And you ask me why I wrote the book. Part of why I wrote the book was to challenge people that thought Bitcoin is useless because we have PayPal. Mm -hmm. They exist on actually four layers separated of money if you work with the hierarchical framework. And so Bitcoin is a first layer money owned by millions of people, some can argue between 40 and 200 million people around the world own, have allocated to Bitcoin. That's a yeah. lot of people that have Bitcoin in the form of a digital commodity without any link to the dollar hierarchy. Yeah. And that is sets the table for a long uh, road ahead for Bitcoin. And what's interesting that I, that I thought was interesting from the book is in the same way that I described in gold, 
it's impractical for me to carry it around and it's risky for me to do that, whatever. And I can't obviously carry, uh, I, I can, I can carry Bitcoin because it's, it's in my digital wallet. Um, but I can't necessarily transact in it in a practical way, right? If I'm going to buy, uh, I'm going to the store, I'm going to buy something with Bitcoin. If I was truly transacting in Bitcoin, there's this time lapse that has to take place for it to, for the transaction to complete before I can walk out with my groceries. And so it, it wasn't practical at that level, but then with these additional layers, then that creates that transactional quality to it while still Bitcoin is the underlying value that is being transacted. Is that fair? Yes. And that's called lightning network. Yes. And you ask me why I transitioned from uh, the fixed income desk to writing about Bitcoin actually light the implementation and invention of lightning network, which happened in 2017, 2018 was the property that I was waiting for to take Bitcoin from where it was, which was a little bit of this slow moving commodity mm -hmm. to now an instantly settling digital commodity, as long as you're already a participant in the network, yeah. which can take 10 to 30 minutes. And once you're onboarded to the Lightning Network, you can now transact Bitcoin with any other Lightning Network participant without any risk of that money not being yours because it's cryptographically the same thing as a Bitcoin transaction. Yeah. So it's just as secure as Bitcoin. And yes, the Lightning Network is only five years old and Bitcoin is 14 years old. These are young, relatively young technologies. But what I identified in the Lightning Network, which was bringing a slower moving digital commodity into instant settlement and enabling Bitcoin to scale to the world, truly. And now I can attest to this as someone who uses Bitcoin hand to hand. Um that Lightning Network transactions make up 90% of my Bitcoin transactions. Mm -hmm. If I'm sending or receiving Bitcoin, if I'm sending Bitcoin, basically 99% of the time I'm using Lightning Network. Yeah. And I've, if I'm receiving, 90% 90, 90 of the time people send me money using Bitcoin. And I'm talking about hand-to-hand -hand transactions here. It's, it's Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. that we that we're all using because now that's the way to it's like people that use venmo and zelle and paypal here yeah. this is like the three main you don't have to you don't have to fight to figure out how to pay each other digitally now yep. like do you have venmo yes zelle okay paypal one of the three somebody's gonna have it and you'll be able to transact digitally with that person lightning network is that an all-in-one there's no competitor to lightning network Every Bitcoin company that's building Bitcoin products is integrating Lightning Network to make sure that the ease of sending and receiving Bitcoin is there and doesn't have a slow 10 to 30 minute burden yeah. of the blockchain. That blockchain burden is essential for security and can be accomplished by any participant in the network. And just like, you know, setting up your Venmo account, you're gonna have to yeah. download the app, link your phone, authenticate the email, do the 2FA. It's going to take a few minutes. Mm -hmm. So is getting on the Lightning Network. And once you're in, you're in and uh, the 
the develop in the development in Lightning Network is part of why I chose this path. I'm glad that I'm glad to see the development. It's probably exceeded my expectation coming back to 2018. Uh, you know, if your if your audience is familiar with a couple of these exchanges, Bitmax and Kraken are two exchanges that have implemented Lightning Network yeah. and uh, are big users of the network itself as money goes in and, you know, dollars go in and out of Bitcoin exchanges mm -hmm. as fast as Bitcoin can now with Lightning Network. Very cool. So let me, I want to circle back on one thing. Uh, so you talked a little bit about how Bitcoin is one of the things that's unique or, or like the central uh, identifying factor that is unique to it is that it is decentralized, um, not to an individual, not to a company, not to a committee, not to a, a country, whatever. And this is probably impossible to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What I, I, is it possible that we could have another Bitcoin, another decentralized uh, platform that could come about? There are those who want it who would who would love nothing more than to create it but how like the the founding and, and kind of the creation of bitcoin is this mysterious figure out there that nobody can can go back and and point to um so i guess anyway i'll leave it at that I, that's my question is it possible the origin story of bitcoin is i mean it's a magnificent mystery and it People might not be satisfied by this description of Bitcoin's creation, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I've said it before. It was an immaculate conception in that nobody was looking for it. And then w when it had grown to be large enough and actually Satoshi left the project, had already mm -hmm. left the project and kind of set Bitcoin on its path to exist without him mm -hmm. or her or they yeah right that dynamic i do not believe can repeat itself because bitcoin this is also what people have to understand about bitcoin and its history bitcoin is actually a computer science evolution so in a way that if any of you have participated in research research studies or academia what do you have to do when you're writing a paper you have to cite all the relevant theories or data findings in your field to establish legitimacy for your own thesis if you just start a thesis and don't cite anything that came before mm -hmm. your paper is essentially irrelevant because you're ignoring the track of your study, of your field yeah. of work. You don't have to agree with the past. You have to cite it though and say, this is what has been and this is what I think. And it's either a slight adjustment or an overhaul of what has come before it. And that's how research and science actually works. Yeah. It builds on the past. And so when Bitcoin was invented with a paper that was released in October 2008 and a working live code in January of 2009. It was a mere evolution of papers and softwares that had been launched in 2005, 2001, 1998, 
all the way back to the original Merkel tree of cryptography, which goes back decades and, you know, mm -hmm. probability theory even um, for her random number generation, public yeah. and private key cryptography, older technologies, right? Bitcoin uses SHA-256, which is a type of SHA-2 secure hash algorithm, which was invented by the NSA, US government intelligence organization in 2001. It was announced in 2001, how long they've had it, um, you know, is not my field of expertise. Mm -hmm. My point here is that Bitcoin was the next software and paper. It was a paper. It started as a research paper as an idea. And guess what it did? It cited 10 different papers written before it and said, here are the components that I used and this is what I put together. And voila, I've created a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. That's the title of Bitcoin's paper. And so how does that process happen again, Rod? I would ask you. Well, it. Yeah. I mean, you look at it and you think it, it was not conceived of before that. Now we can conceive of it because it happened. So then the question is, but can you duplicate it? But what did Bitcoin solve? And the computer science term for what Bitcoin solved is called the Byzantine generals problem. Okay. And this is a computer science problem that had previously been unsolved, which is how to keep nodes or positions in a network all on the same page without a center. And that's what Bitcoin's blockchain, it's a chain of blocks, the architecture solved the Byzantine generals problem for the first time. You can't resolve the Byzantine generals problem. Yeah, you can't resolve it, I guess. And, and the reason I'll just keep going on this is that you would think with that new technology, that new breakthrough, that it could be applied in more than a single case. But what you're saying is you just don't think that's like it would take the same kind of breakthrough, the same kind of new, um, new something, new technology, new, new platform like that in order to create something like Bitcoin. Well, well I'll, I'll explain to you why it's not happening again. If Bitcoin solved the Byzantine general's problem, but one of the big arguments against it was that, hey, it's slow. Like it takes mm -hmm. 10 to 30 to 60 minutes yeah. and it's slow. What did people try to do? They tried to invent faster Bitcoin. That's what Litecoin is. Gotcha. They tried to invent faster Bitcoin. And what did the market do? It dismissed it because the energy went to securing the Bitcoin rules and the Bitcoin protocol. And the market rewarded that with dollars and market value. And has Bitcoin ever lost its position as the number one cryptocurrency by market value? No. Hmm. And hundreds and thousands of competitors have cycled through and failed, cycled through and failed. So the empirical data is already establishing itself that we won't get another one. Yeah, We've had three or four cycles. Yeah, so fascinating. They they solved the Byzantine general's problem. And if the answer was to do it faster or smoother in a different way, they have been tried. Or let's try to do Bitcoin, but not 
do it privately so that we can anonymize the participation because right now it's pseudonymous in a way, you know, um, you have to link Bitcoin to addresses, right? And those addresses are owned and, you know, transferred and we can track IP addresses. Yeah. Privacy is improving in Bitcoin. There are people that are working on those components, not the protocol issuance rules themselves, but, you know, the more uh, external dynamics of the software, all those things are being worked on. But companies, startups, people, developers have tried for 14 years to, mm -hmm. to or for a dozen years to copy and improve and have failed. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Now the one last thing that we need to touch on before, before we end it is uh, just central bank digital currencies. So, and it, it, a government can't create Bitcoin in any, you know, any more than any of the other individual, you know, whatever, like, like we talked about. My question on this one though, is, uh, I mean, they almost presented like they're trying to create an alternative to Bitcoin and yet it, then it goes back to, again, what's the, what's the top of that hierarchy? What's the top layer of the central bank digital currency? The only thing that the only thing that's jeopardized by central bank digital currency is the commercial banking deposit layer, because if people are able to use central bank digital currency, think of it as digital cash, like you have dollar mm -hmm. bills, you'll just have a wallet. It might be a treasury department wallet. It might be your Wells Fargo app on your phone that you'll just have your fed coins, your digital uh, cash in there. The only yeah. thing that that threatens is why you need a checking account anymore. But in terms of the hierarchy, it's no different than cash. It's yeah. still liability of the Fed backed by U.S. Treasuries, which they own on the other side. So central bank digital currency is not an innovation from the monetary hierarchy perspective. And I discussed that in Chapter 9 Absolutely. of the book, Layered Money. Yeah, I like it. Okay, perfect. Well, it's been super interesting, Nick. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, what are your plans from here? Yes, I'm writing a second book and I'm building the Bitcoin layer, my research platform. And so I encourage people to go sign up at thebitcoinlayer.com, sign up for the free newsletter. Uh, we also write paid research a couple times a week. So, and it's only $10 a month. Um, so it is targeting uh, retail investors and just people that are looking for more research and more information on global macro and Bitcoin and how it all falls in. We don't provide investment advice. We just provide our research opinion on what's going on. Of course, we have a free YouTube channel and podcast. People should go subscribe there as well. You can find all of it at thebitcoinlayer.com. And you'll also get news on my uh, coming book as well through that platform. Very cool. Okay, well, I would encourage everyone to check it out and, and read Layered Money if you're interested. Um, I've been fascinated with it, and hopefully this helps give people a little incentive to, to do that. But thank you so much for joining us today, Nick. We appreciate it. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening in, and we'll check you next week. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
This will help others find the show and learn wealth building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next episode.